Today's episode is brought to you by Entire Productions. Are you planning a meeting or an event? Don't pull your hair out or lose sleep. Entire Productions is the CBD for your virtual event aches and pains. You wake up with giving up on your dreams is one thing, but accidentally giving up on your dreams, like it was it was such a, a mind. My gosh, I, I woke up 30 years old and I hated my life. I was becoming a boring Los Angeles real estate guy, renting apartments. And I was making money for the first time, but I was killing myself working. I, it was a work to play sort of thing, just, just living for the weekends. And it was this epiphany about how real estate essentially was making people give up on their dreams. Welcome to Fascinating Entrepreneurs. How do people end up becoming an entrepreneur? How do they scale and grow their businesses? How do they plan for profit? Are they in it for life or are they building to exit? These and a myriad of other topics will be discussed to pull back the veil on the wizardry of successful and fascinating entrepreneurs. Do you wanna wow your best clients? Build a stronger, longer lasting, and more profitable relationship? Do you have a trade show or summit that you need branded promo items to leave your mark? Entire Productions Marketing has the most beautifully curated items at various price points, and we don't make you click through thousands of ugly thumbnail images. Go to entireproductionsmarketing.com. Jeremiah Adler woke up in March with the startling realization that his co-living business for creatives in Los Angeles was going to be demolished by the pandemic. Instead of burying his head in the sand, he took elements of that business and created a whole new and even bigger potential business, Agile Modularity. We'll hear about his entrepreneurial roots and what strategy he's doubling down on for growth. Now let's get right into it. I think the entrepreneurial journey started when I, when I was a teenager, just because my parents were were poor and wouldn't buy me anything, which was actually great. I, for some reason, I have this very vivid memory. Every single summer and weekends during high school, I, I would do yard work. And in Oregon, they have just blackberries overgrown everywhere. And I had spent two weeks clearing this giant mountaintop of just the, the gnarliest, sharpest blackberries. And it, it was just covered in blood, but I wanted a drum set. And, and so there was a very clear sense of being on my own, not having any, any parents, rich uncles to help me out and just did the most... You know, Backbreaking labor for eight bucks an hour. That's a and pretty then, good amount for back then. Yeah, I, I mean, I, so I was a hard worker, and I, I saw the fallacy in the idea of an eight-hour workday immediately. That, that some other kids would come and you know work a few hours with me here or there, but they would always clock out. And I always would try to consolidate as much time as possible. You know, sixteen, twenty-hour days just yard work. Wow. And that was, I like, I, it, it just taught me how to work, which 
should have made me a great employee <laughs> in theory because I, I'm, I'm, I'm really good at working. Just like like rough, rugged building things. I, I, I love working. Uh, yet I was a, a, a terrible employee. And I, I guess you could say my first employer was the U.S. Army. It's essentially, I grew up in super liberal, new age, hippie, Portland, Oregon, uh, in a naturopathic community. I was never immunized, never oh, went wow. to a real doctor, never given antibiotics. And the idea of wealth or, or, or success was somewhat indirectly demonized. I grew up with this hostility towards anyone who would happen to be a little bit more conservative than I would like, anyone who had a nice car, and just had this really immature rhetorical response to you know wealth being ill-gotten, not the product of work. And so you know I, I sort of bumped around in my early 20s and was always doing little entrepreneurial things that obviously in retrospect were the foundation of what we're doing now. When I graduated college, I directed a pilot called Nick Bradley Might Be an Alcoholic in Portland, Oregon for $4,000. And this was semi-autobiographical after I got drunk and threw a beer bottle through a fraternity window and it was a whole to do. And you were interested in film at that time, right? Yeah. I mean, obviously you did this, this project, but film must have been on your mind before this. It, so I, it, it, it was the, the, the summer before this senior year of college where I transitioned from going to be a lawyer. Uh, I met the first rich person of my entire life, a, a woman named uh, Danielle Alexandra. She was the writer and executive producer of G.I. Jane, if you remember that movie. Uh -huh. And I, I took really the, the, the first sort of audacious staff of my life, she was volunteering at a summer camp uh, because her, her child wasn't comfortable staying overnight without his mom there. So she was there for weeks. I was a camp counselor and we developed this friendship. Uh, I asked to see one of her scripts. I was bold. I gave it back to her with a ton of uh, <laughs> oh notes. God. And within three weeks, uh, I was in the south of France on a 200 foot yacht. With, with a bunch of writers who were working on a, a rewrite for a pilot she'd sold to Touchstone Pictures or something. And so this was really the first culture shock. It wasn't just, oh, I, I met uh, a rich person. It was, you know, we're being served by, the, there's more crew than there are guests on the, you know, the 12 bedroom yacht. And it, it was such a confusing experience because we're on the French Riviera. And as far as the eye can see, there, there's just these mega yachts and sailboats and just the, the, the wealth. I always had this idea of the, you know, demonizing the 1%, but I never realized until then that, oh, the 1%, that, that's actually still a lot of people. Yeah, I wondered if that was your gateway to Los Angeles. Also, your gateway to sailing. <laughs> so tell me about that. You came to L.A. because... So I'd written and directed a pilot for four grand 
in Portland, moved to Los Angeles within six months. I had an agent in ICM. Uh, Dan Fair was our manager, just executive produced Ready Player One. Life was happening. The, the way that it's not supposed to happen happened very quickly. And in a few year period, I wrote, directed three pilots, got hired to write a script, uh, did a commercial. Do you find that, do you think writing for you is a, like a superpower or the ideation and the creativity of, of a storyline? What was so, your biggest talent there? It's, it's so fascinating you bring that up because probably the thesis of the past eight months has, uh, has been storytelling. And if you look at everything I've done in life, I, it, it's been a reaction to ha what happened right before. And so wrote, directed a pilot because I got about a guy that, you know, may or may not be an alcoholic who had all this responsibility thrust on him. That was reaction to my experience there that took me to the next step. And uh, at, at that point, I ran out of money. Like I was broke. I, I literally had no money. I, I had no car. I was riding around on a bicycle and I had $11 in my bank account with no money coming in, no checks waiting to clear, no job. And where were you living at that time? I, I was getting kicked out of uh, the, this mansion in Brentwood that I was house sitting for two years that this producer owned because she moved to London. So it was great. My one responsibility was to make sure the dogs didn't get out. The dogs got out on oh. San Vicente Boulevard, got hit by a car and I was kicked out. No money, 11 bucks in my bank account. Ah, shit. Okay. What to do next? And that was Boring story, got into property management, got a free apartment, but that was the transition where I, I stopped being an artist completely unintentionally. Just I, I woke up three years later and hadn't put a pen to paper. I had previously thought that you're an artist. You, the, you There's this idea that you have that you could never possibly be happy or content doing anything else. Right. I mean, as an artist, for me, that's all I thought I'd ever do, period, end of story. And I think a lot of artists, it's that passion and the ability and the talent that push you toward that, that thought. But then life shows up and shows you a different way. So interesting that your artistry as a writer, producer, director led you to LA and survival led you to doing the property management, and then you put it together. And, and that's Upstart. And, and so, you started Upstart Creative, which is a really cool endeavor. We can talk about what's going on with that uh, after you explain what it is, because it's, it is really cool. And it is informing you of your next entity, which I can't wait to talk to you about. Yeah. So in reaction to the experience, wow. You wake up, giving up on your dreams is, is one thing, but accidentally giving up on your dreams, like it, it was, it was such a, a, a mind, I, my gosh, I, I woke up 30 years old and I hated my life. I was becoming a boring Los Angeles real estate guy, renting apartments, and I was making money for the first time, but I was killing myself working 
it was a, 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 a work to play sort of thing, just, just living for the weekends. And it was this epiphany about how real estate essentially was, was making people give up on their dreams. And this, this narrative, uh, you hear the phrase housing crisis, and it's, it, it's so rhetorical, it doesn't really mean anything. But the insidious thing about it is when rent is high and you are a young person in this very you know, vulnerable, important, exciting time in your life, where you essentially have to sell your labor, your time, ju just to pay your landlord. And so the idea was, you know, how could uh, how could your home empower your dreams rather than prohibit that? And so uh, we introduced the Japanese sleeping pod to the, the U.S. market. Everyone thought we were crazy. And where uh, did you come to that idea? How did you know about that? The, the army. When I was in the army, uh, I, I slept in a barracks with 102 other guys in bunk beds, and I, I have this always had this thing in the back of my head of I, you know I wish there was just a, a giant warehouse that wasn't full of homeless people that was like full of cool people like pursuing their dreams who wanted to spend the absolute minimum amount of money on rent and dedicate their time. Uh, and so Japanese sleeping pods just per, we started with bunk beds, uh, but then we, I, we, I built the pods, my, my, myself, five generations of them. And in what Upstart grew into was, you know, so the mission was to empower young people to invest their time and money in themselves rather than their rents. And we did that by building these hyper affordable uh, pod-based co-living communities that were built around share, shared interests. So there's curation. Uh, you had to be an artist, actor, musician, filmmaker, DJ, pursuing a career in the arts. And it was so much fun. I, it, 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 uh, the, the cool broke kids, that, that, that's our demographic, the, the, the cool. So during kids. this time, Jeremiah, you have created something really cool it's the, sort of the answer to what your problem was before, but what were you doing beside that to be creative? Were you writing at this time again or no, no time for that? I mean, I, I was doing nothing, nothing creative in, in this, this was the explosion of, of excitement was transitioning from this mindset that I would never be happy doing anything, but being a writer director, because that was my creativity to finding entrepreneurship, which I, I mean, it's not a hundred times, it's a thousand times more re rewarding and satisfying uh, for me. Like, like uh, to me, entrepreneurship, it, it's- That's it's cool to hear you say, because yeah. a lot of people ask me, when are you going to perform again? When are you going to create another record? Are you going to go on tour? And I'm just like, um, I don't know, right? Like I am having the time of my life with entrepreneurship. So it sounds like upstart creative- took you on another wave into, and this, this is your creative endeavor. You can't deny that. Oh, oh yeah. It, it, I, again, I had no freaking clue how to be an entrepreneur. Uh, three or maybe four five months, I think after we started, we, we got an investment, an initial investment offer for half a million bucks, which was 
insane, amazing. I, I, I we thought my life was. Did you go out? Did you go out for venture capital or angel, or did someone oh, just approach you? I, I, I had, I had no idea that this was coincidentally the owner of the summer camp where I met the Hollywood producer that I went on the yacht with. Just did a weird, crazy series of events, and and now he's he's one of my best friends and mentors. Uh, but I, it was I, it was the epitome of a green entrepreneur. He loved the idea. He wanted to invest. And then it came time for due diligence. And they said, uh, great, could we have a p and a, <laughs> uh, a, a P and what? <laughs> a, or, or a profit and loss or a balance sheet. You just export it. QuickBooks. Books. <laughs> uh, well, bank statements. Can we see your company bank account? I was like, I, I'm just using my personal account. So everything was completely co-mingled and terrible. And we, you know, we made it about two seconds through due diligence. <laughs> like, okay, you, you guys are, are, are definitely not ready. That is and, one of the questions I was going to ask you later, but I think we should talk about it now is how did you learn the ropes of running a business from financial reports to hiring, firing, culture, scaling, growing? Are you still learning on the job or did you get educated in a more formal way along the way? So the biggest transition happened when we brought in a guy named Jeff Zuckerman uh, is, is our COO. What, what people saw in Upstart was a disruptive, new, scalable idea, a bit, bit, bit billion-dollar idea, uh, but it, it had a completely inexperienced entrepreneur. And so uh, Jeff Zuckerman came in as our COO. He was the founder of Pizza Rev, entrepreneur guy. He had a successful exit under his belt. And he, he was really the one that taught me how to be a, a CEO. And to me, that, that's the distinction that the overwhelming majority of entrepreneurs I talk to, I, especially in EO, don't, don't get that or understand that at all. You're, you're a business owner, you're an entrepreneur, but a, a CEO, that's something very specific and you do something very specific. Did you, did you learn from him by modeling or did he really sit you down and go, okay, here's the deal. If you're going to be CEO of this company, these are the things that are expected. I don't think he realized how much I didn't know. I constantly absorbed. So, so the first thing was that my time is more valuable than anyone else's in the organization, which, which sounds egomaniacal and was so hard for me to embrace because I had this Portland, Oregon, you know, for moving bags of sand and every good leadership is being down in the trenches yeah. there as well. And he's like, oh, no, 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 absolutely. As a CEO, your time's more valuable than anyone else's in the organization. And you need to get over that mindset. And so, you know, my co-founders, he immediately split me off into thinking mode and, and then essentially taught me that the three jobs the CEO has is, you know, come up with a vision, uh, come up with the money, uh, and then communicate that to the press, your customers, and your investors. That, that's really what a CEO's job is. And 
I was really crummy at it uh, <laughs> the, the the first couple of years. First yeah, what year, year did this start? Let's see. So the, this was 18, uh, let's call it uh, the, the year before the pandemic was the professionalization, uh, a full 12-month period where we had uh, an executive team, an experienced executive team come on board, uh, a chief real estate officer and a COO that professionalized the organization, uh, made SOPs, wrote a 300-page operating manual, systematized everything so we could scale to other cities. And the opportunities kept coming, except I, I was incapable of doing the things that were required to close any of them. And at this point, a year before the pandemic, how many, how many places did you have? Yeah, so we got up to eight places, about $3 million in revenue, and we were getting ready for a Series A. Were you uh, profitable? We were. We were, we were, we were. I mean, we we grew with our own revenue. I never took any significant salary at all, and we just kept plugging the money back in. And so, you know, we, we would essentially, what, 350000 of friends and family money in debt, we grew to $3 million in revenue, mm-hmm. uh, which people thought was cool. And so c- coming you know, full circle back to the, you know, your, your idea of storytelling and communication, the biggest Achilles heel that I had as an entrepreneur, which I've since overcome and has just completely changed my life was the ability to tell a business story uh, concisely when you're not in the room, basically that I can always sell the dream and, you know, talk to a room full of people, but we had a very real, we, we got a term sheet uh, a year before the pandemic, $10 million term uh, investment, like a $30 million pre-money, I forget if it's pre or post, but it, it, it like, like life-changing dreams come true type of thing. Yep. And uh, it was a, a new guy that was raising a fund and he said, here's the term sheet, but I need a pitch deck. I love it. I know I know what it can be, but I have to be able to communicate that to my partners. I need a pitch deck. And literally, it took, I swear to God, nine months to create the pitch Wow, the pitch really? If you'd like to know how to scale and grow your business and make more profit, sign up on my website, natashamiller.co, to get on the wait list for my entrepreneurial master's course. But going from having no idea what a pitch deck is to making a pitch deck, like I addressable market, I don't know, competitive advantage, like that was really, really, really hard for me. And it, it essentially, in retrospect, d- destroyed the company because we had a full year when there was capital on the table. Everyone thought it was a brilliant idea. And I couldn't just get over my hangups and learn PowerPoint. I, I, it, was, it was literally that simple. I didn't know how to use PowerPoint. <laughs> and 
Then finally, okay, then we hire an investment bank. We got there, but we could have been there in 12 days rather than yep. 12 months. And unfortunately, lessons, right? Oh, yeah, it was April. And so that's the Woody Allen humor of this. I, I started a company that was based a high density co working company <laughs> right before a pandemic when, <laughs> you know, Time Magazine's phrase of the year is going to be social distancing. <laughs> I, I, right before we were talking about the social benefit of of density, and I, it, it, you know, li, li, literally the entire co living industry has has been bent into chaos. There's did another, everyone move home to to their families? Oh, so this is as a rent arbitrage uh, based company. There, there's no worse position that you could be in because you are in this weird middle place where you're not a landlord, you're not a tenant, or you are a landlord and you are a tenant. But basically, our members are all, you know, the cool broke kids. They all immediately got laid off by the first stay at home order. And then the eviction moratorium essentially means that, you know, there's 400 beds that don't have to pay us for the past eight months, yet we're accumulating debt to our landlords. Do you own any of the buildings? Oh, oh no. So this was the the fallacy that the industry was following after we work. There, there was yeah. this perceived wisdom and rent arbitrage and, oh, we're a tech company, not an office space. Like, <laughs> this is the insanity of the world now. The most valuable private company in the world was a shared office space. Now the entire world's given up their office space. Right. And... I was pursuing, you know, high density co-living. And so it'll come the, back, right? I mean, in a year, year and uh, a half. In theory, yes. I'm much, much, much too impatient for that. Of course. So you've got the, other things going. Oh yeah. I was like the, the stay-at-home order hits. What the hell are we gonna do? I mean, I love the idea of upstart creative and it sounds like you're about to make an exit from that company one way or the other. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. Most definitely. Yeah. So uh, let's jump right into what I saw you on the news and you on social media. My jaw dropped. I was like, oh, my God, this is brilliant. And that idea that you had, I don't know what month it was, April, May. It was early, you know, early on. You were on the news talking about these modular um, spaces for, you know, I think COVID and medical uses. And you now have an, a new company, Agile Modularity. This is the, the, the craziest, not if it makes any sense at all. The stay-at-home order hit. Uh, we had been negotiating a $500,000 loan with a family office uh, to open the ninth property for Upstart. We just wired them $5,000 for their attorneys, the documentation fees, then the pandemic hits. It's clear that there's not going to be any capital raising and this family office ghosts us. And I, I, I'm bummed out, depressed. Like, what, what are we supposed to do as entrepreneurs when we can't be entrepreneurs? You know, suddenly 
Upstart didn't need a CEO. It needed CPR. It, it just needed to tread water. There, there was no growth. There, there, was, there was nothing for me to do. So after feeling sorry for myself for a week, a long lost uncle called, uh, who's a doctor, and he said, maybe, maybe there's some way you can use your, your silly pods to help increase capacity during the pandemic. And I woke up in the middle of the night, uh, started scratching some, some pen drawings. It took me eight days to finally get a hold of this family office guy that was ghosting us. Got on the phone with him and I was like, no, 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 don't, don't worry about the five grand. Don't worry about the loan. I, why would you give us a loan? Don't, I have something big. I have an idea. And what we did changed the concept of the Japanese sleeping pod to be a negative pressure isolation uh, unit for COVID patients because they were, you know, imagining thousands of people were going to be in stadiums as patients dying. We needed a way to separate their germs. And somehow, eight, eight days after the idea, raised three hundred thousand dollars. No pitch deck, uh, just based off of a napkin drawing, and this started the the, the modular concept basically, and. I, I brought in uh, the, the largest lobbying firm, Englander, Knobby and Allen uh, in, in California is an equity partner uh, to handle all the B2G sales. Uh, and then Adam Englander became a co-founder later on. And so now it was like, oh, we have we have money. We, we have lobbyists. These guys play golf with the, the mayor sometimes. That sort of feels like a, a grown-up thing like, <laughs> in contrast to Upstart. And then as they were talking to the city about our negative pressure pods, they said, these are great. Can you do something for, for homelessness? Because every single rec center is being converted to a homeless shelter in Los Angeles. And so, yeah, sure. Put the inventor cap on and it evolved and it evolved and it evolved. And today I've essentially uh, built the, the, the playground, the home that I hope to spend the rest of my life in. I, I don't want to raise more venture capital. We're, we're still taking you know, friends and family money. We, we just signed a, a joint venture agreement with Duramax, uh, U.S. Polymers, uh, Harwell Group, uh, their giant international manufacturing conglomerate, $100 million organization to essentially bring our, our I, I ideas to life. And so I've essentially created a parent company that has subsidiaries that all follow this common theme that couldn't be further from I guess, <laughs> co-living from upstart. Uh, sort of our product pursuit thesis is making disruptive designs uh, that reduce human suffering and are, are timely and relevant. So there has to be a specific reason to do what we're doing right now. And so- And where uh, are you with that process? Like, are they- being manufactured, built, and used? Are they still in the ideation? So, so we, we've just, we, we, we are pre-revenue. I am I guessing we are definitely on that transition from pre to post-revenue. The, the negative pressure isolation pot this all started with uh, is probably 100 days away from uh, FDA approval. Uh, we expect very, very big sales. Uh, the CEO of a Providence hospital called and said if we had FDA approval now, they buy 
700 units uh, for this. What are the what are the units cost approximately? Uh, twenty thousand. Twenty thousand. They they have recurring revenue for us. Uh, a disposable filter. They are revenue generating for the hospital. And bigger picture that you know the, this idea of coming back to storytelling and 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 decks. It, it, as soon as we got you know spread with two product verticals, homelessness and medical, it became very hard to communicate to, to people. It's like, wait, wait a sec. It's violating the first rule of business and entrepreneurship. You pick one thing, you go after that. You can't go in all these directions. And fundamentally, like that's what I wanted though. The, the, the whole time I was at Upstart, I always wanted to do the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. And it, it, it would never work. And so with Agile, the idea was to create an organization with the resources to empower these big ideas very quickly. And so through the joint venture partnership, we can build anything, essentially anything we want immediately. It's amazing to hear you talk. So the storyline, you know, went from Portland, Oregon, shunning wealth and money, realizing um, that you can actually do good with money and that people can be good people with with money. You put away your dream um, because of practical reasons. You had to go in and get a, a quote unquote real job that led you to Upstart, which is, I think, just a great entity. And then pandemic hits and it just kicks your butt. And now you're using the words FDA approval. Honestly, uh, it, it's a great therapist. I never patented anything. And then suddenly <laughs> and it's like, oh, I, I, I'm going to start in, inventing things. Yeah. What is and, the most pressing challenge right now for this new venture? Uh, so transitioning into a sales uh, or organization, which it, <laughs> literally within a, a, a matter of 10 days. Now, it, it's obviously overwhelmingly frustrating getting a phone call from the CEO of a province hospital saying that, when can I buy this? I want to pay you $14 million and you can't legally sell it because it, it's an FDA approval. That's really frustrating. Now, simultaneously, we had just, with, with uh, Duramax, they're the Home Depot shed guys. They're the largest manufacturer of storage solutions in the country. But and they're making our homeless shelters. It literally 14 days ago is when the realization came of we could combine the two things. Our negative pressure pod goes inside of a hospital, and so it's considered a medical device that needs FDA approval. Our homeless shelters are obviously not, but what the hell are you going to do with those? Well, now, again, woke up in the middle of the night, completely redesigned the homeless shelter, and now uh, we have these uh, rapid deployment modular cubes, essentially, that are symmetrical and pinned, be put together like blocks in literally any configuration you can imagine. So if you, uh, and they're 120 square feet each, which is the average size of a hospital room. And so if you literally want to you know, build an entire hospital with these things, you can. They move around on forklifts, four of them fit per flatbed truck. You can literally, you know, scale capacity immediately anywhere. And the idea is to 
not put COVID patients in them, although you can early on in the past two weeks, realize that there's an inefficiency between sort of having the infirmary tents outside and your COVID and med surge ward inside. And so the way we see these being used is your bumps and bruises, your business as usual, your stitches, move all of that outside. And the, the these are sexy, sweet. You, you would want to go to the doctor uh, in one of these. And uh, then, you know, uh, essentially turn your entire hospital into an ICU. And now the public doesn't have to enter, or the healthy but injured public doesn't have to enter a contaminated hospital during a pandemic, exposing themselves to risk. And you get an increased efficiency among your hospital staff. So we, we went from this organization that was not sales focused, that was essentially R&D. Okay, we got 100 days on the FDA and then the homeless units, that's a B to G play. The lobbyists are doing that. that. That's an unhurried, you know, three to 12 month sales cycle for a given PO. Now within a matter of days, because of the, the, the partnership that we created, we can literally manufacture immediately and our production capacity we can increase the U.S. healthcare capacity by 0.8% in 90 days if we max out our production capacity. So everything is in place to change the world, save lives, make unfathomable wealth, except sales. What are you going to do? I mean, one of the questions that I was going to ask you, and I think this is probably the focus, is what strategy will you double down on to scale and grow um, this new business? So I think your response is going to be getting a sales team? So no. One lesson I've learned, I, I loved Upstart to death, but done dealing with the public and, and, and don't want to have a ton of employees. We, we became a bloated organization with 35 employees. It, it, was, it was too much. And so the way that we've successfully pursued all these verticals is by outsourcing as much as we can. And so the, the, the hope, I do believe this is going to be successful, is outsource sales partnerships. Our, our product thesis. It relies on a low number of high volume customers for a high price point item uh, and items that are, are relationship based. Um, it, between all the verticals, the lowest price point we're going to have is 5,000. The highest one is 50 grand. We don't do any B2C stuff. It's uh, government, Fortune 1000, and, and NGO uh, uh-huh. that we're going to be doing business with. And so we're bringing in a VP of sales, but we, we need to mobilize an army across the country. We, we, we can't scale. So will they be independent sales reps? Oh yeah. So, so very generously commissioned, you know, you, you can make a few hundred grand in, in the next 90 days. So in sort of the durable medical world that, that this is pre-existing in the B2G, there's just these government brokers, a lot of them ex-military guys, veterans uh, that connect people with something to sell with the right government agency. And so I, 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 I want to design stuff, build stuff, 
and keep a slim organization that has B2G sales in five or $10 million purchase order with FEMA. That's the, the new exciting challenge. I, I'm, I'm curious if you've ever experienced this as an entrepreneur, but the, the transition with Upstart, all the people we hired, you know, started my brother, my cousin, my fiance. It, it was an organization built of peers, whereas Agile from the beginning, every single person in the organization uh, coming in with stock is richer than me more experienced yeah, I've, than I've checked out the website and I was like, wow, Jeremiah, you're in, you're in deep and you're in, it looks like you're in good company. This is the joy uh, of, of entrepreneurship. It's taking that mentality from Portland, Oregon, from being a kid of rich, successful people are bad to wait a second. Yeah. Some rich people are assholes, but uh, at the, 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 the successful people I know, smartest, most engaging, most generous people. And just being around them, absorbing that wisdom is such an incredible growth experience. And to me, that is now the, the, the thesis of life is just growth. The, the most important thing anyone ever said to me about entrepreneurship was actually someone from our chapter, Tre Trevor Henson. Mm -hmm. and we were getting sued. This is when there was a near hostile takeover of, uh, of, of upstart. I remember this time I was, yeah. I was around during that time. Oh, oh yeah. And, and so much like I, I was, I couldn't sleep. I was so terrified of losing upstart because I, I had no clue who I would be without my company. I was my company and Trevor who had had a similar experience six months earlier, he said, my gosh, the, 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 these words impacted me. He said, I, I felt the same way, but coming out on the other side, what I realized is that I'm not my business. What I am is an entrepreneur. And that's something nobody could ever, ever take away from you. You can go bankrupt, you can get sued, you can like lose everything. But that was it's like, no, no, I, I'm not an artist. I am an entrepreneur. There's no other option it's like oh crap the covid breaks out a pandemic i it can't sit there for 12 months it gets there for 12 12 days it's we we have to do that that's what you're doing and it, it's the most rewarding experience i've ever had it, it is is just i'm right there with you i i understand and i think most entrepreneurs would understand being being able to be an entrepreneur means that you can get slammed down on one side and there's this come back bigger on the other. And it doesn't even have to be with the same thing you got slammed with. It could be a whole new thing. And then guess what? All the stuff that you learned along the way now is amplified and you're using language and words you wouldn't even have had access to a few years ago. Oh, oh well, yeah, I, I, absolutely. And now as an entrepreneur, I think realizing that, embracing that, which is so the the, the joint venture with Duramax. There, there were lots of, of points in that deal we could have negotiated harder on, but like to me, it's like this is a deal of a lifetime, and I, I should be paying them to <laughs> make a deal. Like this is is a YPO guy, the CEO of a hundred million dollar corporation, and now I get to talk to him three times a day. Wow. 
I, I know you've experienced this all the time. Like th this is what we as entrepreneurs, we all have the same conversation with our non-entrepreneur friends that you, you try to help, you try to give opportunity for, and rather than if, if, if doing whatever they can to pursue that opportunity, it, it's, wait a second, what's in it for me? And that was, that was the biggest personal growth experience I ever had. You know, it was shedding these, these childish ideas about what money is, what wealth is, what success is. Uh, a year of therapy, I, I got to the <laughs> point where the, the therapist said to me, you don't give a shit about money. The, the idea of money, conceptually, yes, money is a good thing. You, you want to do that. But you know, as an entrepreneur, it's like it, it's not the money that comes in or no. doesn't come in. It, it, it's that's not the rewarding thing. That, that that's the check mark. Yeah, uh, for me, I think you know I have enough money to do what I want to do, and I don't. I, I live a pretty modest lifestyle. But for me, the biggest payout is I get to do whatever I want to do, pretty much all day long, every day. There are little things that I have to do that actually I don't love and I really could and slash should delegate and will, you know, shortly. But basically I wake up and I'm like, cool, like everything that I have on my agenda and everything that I come into that isn't on my agenda is something I want to do. There's no money in the world that can replace that. And I'm interested in what conversation you and I might have in 10 years, what this next venture will inform you to do next. And this is the question, you know, is this just another company or, I mean, one, I'm not trying to build a company. I, I, I want to build an organization that empowers all of my and other ideas. And, you know, Matthew Walk, for example, is joining us from EO on the medical side. What one of the things we're doing it, with, with this parent company subsidiary model is we can share all the resources with manufacturing, with lobbying, all of that at the head level. But you know, if we have people that come in and they have an idea, we're not making everyone sign an IP assignment. We're saying, look, if you invest something that could benefit from our resources, uh, we'll create a new subsidiary. We'll we'll split the equity, and then. There's a way to satisfy that urge, excitement, the next project, the next. So uh, I'm, I'm excited to see where it goes. Jeremiah is a truly fascinating entrepreneur. From screenwriter to co-living founder, to developing a solution for COVID isolation patients and the homeless. His story is still developing as any true entrepreneurs does. We don't rest on our laurels. We're always innovating. For more information about me, go to my website, natashamiller.co. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you loved the show. If you did, please subscribe. Also, if you haven't done so yet, please leave a review where you're listening to this podcast now. I'm Natasha Miller, and you've been listening to Fascinating Entrepreneurs.